Hey, good morning. How you doing, 11 o'clock? Oh, sun is out. It's beautiful. You slept in a little bit. Well, it's good to have you. Hey, if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Mike had said, we're going to go into a time of teaching right now. When you came into this room, hopefully you were handed a program. If you would open that up, inside that program is a message note sheet, which is going to be a great tool to help you follow along as, uh, as we go into this time. I'm going to pray for us and we can get started. Father, as we've been in this series, Jesus, we want to stop and ask that you would bring to mind everything that we've learned. You would bring to mind that we have a Jesus that came after us, even though we were a rebel race, that you would remind us that that Jesus resurrected us, gave us a brand new life, and set us with a new purpose and mission. Father, I pray that, as I said the last time I was up here, you remind us daily that we can live out an epic life because we walk with a truly epic God. And so as we wrap up the first half of this letter, as we get ready to tackle the second one, I pray that you remind us of what we've learned, that you build a solid foundation on it, and that we represent you well as we go out and show them what, how epic our Jesus truly is. In your son's name, we all pray loudly. Amen. Well, again, if you're here for the first time, I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take just a few moments here at the top and bring you up to speed in this series. Since about the beginning of the new year, since starting in January, we've been in this series called Epic the Vision, which is a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. And like I've mentioned, this was written by a man named the Apostle Paul. And what he's doing in this letter is he's writing to a group of Christ followers who are located in the region around in one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus. And the theme of the letter to the Ephesians is that Paul is laying out to Christ followers this epic vision that God has for all of creation. Paul lays out in this letter that this was a vision that began before we were even created. It began before time began. It's a vision that God continues to work out today in real time. And it's a vision that ultimately is going to come to completion and fruition when Jesus returns. And so as we've talked about already, I'm going to be wrapping up this series, which is wrapping up the first half of this letter. And Paul is going to end this first half in a similar way to how he started it, with a prayer on behalf of Christ's followers. About four weeks ago, I was up here and we looked at that first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. In that prayer, if you remember, Paul was praying for us and he was saying, Christ followers, I want you to experience more of how incredible Jesus is. I want you to experience more of Jesus in your life. And now in the second prayer, we're gonna see that Paul's heart is the same. He's gonna pray, Christ followers, I want you to experience more. But what we're gonna see this morning is that when Paul prays for us to experience more, another way of saying that is he's praying for us to grow in our spiritual maturity. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're following along on your note sheet, there's a section titled The Charge. So Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to go down to verse 14. So starting in verse 14, the apostle writes, For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now let's stop right there and let's unpack this introduction because he said a few things in there that are very unique and catch our attention. The first thing that catches my attention is his posture in prayer. Do you notice that Paul says he kneels before God? What makes this unique is that in early Jewish culture, in the early church, the common posture for prayer was to be standing was to stand and pray. So what Paul is doing is he's modeling what it means to show a genuine, earnest submission to our king. And so he's kneeling and he calls God Father. That's the second thing that jumps out at me. See, in Paul's time, if you were given a name or a title, the purpose of that name or title was to, show, was to, was to reflect your core character, who you are. When Paul calls God Father, he's making a very clear, he's painting a clear message of God's characteristics, that God is our creator, that he is the head of this new community, this new family of Christ followers, but also that as a father, he is intimately involved in the lives of his children. In fact, Paul loves this designation so much that it's the title he frequently he, he most frequently uses when he refers to God. In the New Testament, in his writings alone, he calls God Father 42 times, eight of which are in Ephesians. And so what is he asking our Father for? He's asking that the Holy Spirit that you received when you gave your life to Jesus, again, going back in the series, you are the temple in which God dwells. And he uses the word dwells and I love that word because in the Greek, the word we've translated to dwells, the original Greek word is a very strong word to say that Jesus has taken a permanent residence in your life. I pray to Jesus, I pray to the spirit that is within you that you would experience more. And so again, you see how connected this is to the first prayer? So another way of saying that, I pray that the God that began a work in you, that began maturing you, would give you more maturity, would grow you more. And now what he's going to do next in his verse is he's going to answer the million-dollar question, how do we grow in our spiritual maturity? So let's see what he has to say. Going back to verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. If you've got your Bible and a pen, if you've got an app that's capable of highlighting, would you highlight that phrase rooted and established in love? And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. See, we have a second reference to our new community, our new family. You together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now let's stop right there. How do we grow in our spiritual maturity? It's through the love of Christ. 
the love of Christ that we received upon our conversion, the love of Christ that lives within us now that we are the temple, that love is, that is the love that grows us, that is continually changing us. And so what Paul, his prayer of more, is simply put, you've experienced the love of Jesus and I want you to experience more of his love. I want you to experience more of how much Jesus loves you because that will grow and mature you. And he goes on to paint a picture. He uses these dimensions of knowing. He's trying to paint a picture for his readers of how big this love is. And this isn't in your note sheets, but as I was studying for this, I came across this quote from a scholar that I really liked. As he describes the dimension Paul uses, he says, God's love is wide, covering the breadth of our experiences and reaching out to the whole world. His love is long, continuing the length of our lives and on into eternity. His love is high, rising to the heights of our celebration and elation. And finally, his love is deep, reaching into the depths of discouragement, despair, and even death. To put it in my vernacular, you think you know how loved you are? Dude, you don't even know. You don't even know how loved you are by God because it is that love which will give you what you need to grow strong. Go back to the word rooted. When you think of that word, you immediately picture a tree, do we not? And I don't picture a lame little Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I picture something big, strong, and massive. And if you were to take like a giant redwood or something, how did it grow big and strong and massive? It was rooted in the right place. It was rooted somewhere where it would gain nourishment. It would grow it. A rooted tree is stable. It's not moving anywhere and is continually being given what it needs. And so Paul uses that picture in our lives to tell us that Christ followers, your stability, your growth, your maturity is found in the love of Jesus. And there is a lot of his love that you are going to experience through your life. Experience more. Because in the love of Jesus, we find completion. You will be filled with his fullness. In the love of Jesus, we find completion. And if you go back to verse 19, I love what he says that this is a love that surpasses knowledge. We as limited human beings will never be able to fully wrap our minds around how loved we are by an infinitely loving God. That is a glorious paradox. And so again, the crux of his prayer, how do we experience more? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God who lives in us, who translates for us, who contextualizes for us, who continues to give us what we need. And he says, pray to the Spirit to experience more of his love. Now, what Paul is going to do is now he's going to conclude the first half of this letter by concluding his prayer on the same note which with which he started writing in chapter 1. And that's a note, that's a word of praise for how amazing our God is. So let's read together. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work with us, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do immeasurably more. 
What I like from Paul's writings is you see clearly he's very accustomed to asking big things of our God on behalf of the church. And I love what Paul models in this. He asks for big things because he understands how big our God is. He asks that we experience more, and he writes as somebody who has been surprised and overwhelmed over and over again by how much there is to the love of Christ. And what I like there, too, is that he reminds you, he says, to the, to, to the source of that power that lives within you. Again, Paul isn't praying that you would have an initial experience with Jesus. To Christ followers, he's saying that power that began a good work is continuing his work, and it's still within you. That's what's in you, and I'm praying that you would be aware of that to experience more. And then he concludes with his third reference to our new community. Glory, give, may the church give glory to God. And what's amazing about that reference is when we gave our lives to Jesus, individually, we became the church, but collectively, we are also the church. On both of those fronts, the only reason the church can exist individually and collectively is through the love of Christ. Because what is the church? Individually, we were rebels that had committed treason, but it was his love that forgave us of our sins that resurrected us and restored us and turned us into the church. Collectively, we are a beautiful group of diverse people with different stories, different backgrounds, and on paper, we shouldn't be here together, but we are united under the same father with the same mission. Individually and collectively, the church is a megaphone as to the masterpiece of what God's love can do. So as the church, we give glory to God for that love. So that's our passage, and that's the first half of Ephesians. Next week, as we talk about how to live out this vision, we're going to see in the coming chapters that to live out this vision, it's essential that we be growing in our spiritual maturity. So that being the case, what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to dig deeper into what is true spiritual maturity. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Foundation of Maturity. And your first fill-in is this. Experiencing Christ's love is how we mature. Experiencing Christ's love is how we mature. Now, as is often the case, after these note sheets were printed, I thought of a word I wanted to add to that phrase. So if you would indulge me, at the beginning of that sentence, would you add the word regularly? regularly experiencing Christ's love is how we mature. Because here's a core truth from Paul's prayer. Christ followers, we were created for maturity. We were not created for complacency. We were created for maturity. However, I think we have a skewed view of what spiritual maturity actually is. And so what Paul is doing in his prayer, he's giving us the source of maturity is Christ's love and only Christ's love. Let's test this a little bit. Rhetorically, in your heads, before you came in here today and we started talking about this topic, how would you have defined spiritual maturity? What would have been your picture of a spiritually mature Christian? How did they get to that point of maturity? I thought about this in my own life. 
I thought about this from uh, years and years of walking and working with Christ followers. And it's interesting all the different pictures that have come up. I, I wrote down some of the most common examples. For me personally, when I, my very first picture of spiritual maturity was books. In the third Indiana Jones movie, there's a scene where he walks into this giant library of rows and rows of books. When I was 16, that's how I felt the first time I walked into a pastor's office. I remember just seeing rows and rows of books and going, okay, that's what it means. That's what it means to be spiritually mature. You're breaking your budget buying stuff off Amazon all the time. <laughs> so there we go. Or there's some people that the way they characterize maturity is knowledge. You're the type of person, well, we think that the people that have the answer to every spiritual question ever asked are somehow spiritually mature. That person knows for a fact that in Genesis, it was six eras or six 24-hour days. That person knows for a fact what happened to the dinosaurs. They know, they understand revelation without a problem. Man, that person must be mature. Or for some of us, we gauge maturity based on how much of the Bible you have memorized. Have you ever encountered these amazing saints that it seems like they have the entire Bible cover to cover memorized? It's awesome, and it's also intimidating. My memory is awful. And there's people that are referencing things. Oh, that reminds me of Hosea 4 too. I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> and for some of us, we sit there and go, well, that, that must be the sign of maturity, right? Or there's some people that we sit there and go, well, the people that are truly spiritually mature are the people that spend at least 12 hours in a dark room on their knees praying, just praying over and over. And that's an amazing thing, but their knees must hurt and they're just shot and they're praying like there's no tomorrow because of them there probably isn't. And they're just praying over and over again. That's maturity. Or spiritual maturity to some is your vocation. You're a pastor. That means you're spiritually mature or you're a scholar or a theologian, those are the people that are spiritually mature. There's some people that equate spiritual maturity by your worship posture. The higher your hands go, the more mature you must be. <laughs> that person's jumping up and down. They must love Jesus. Oh my gosh. Now hear me very, very clearly. All of these things I just listed off, they're all great things. And they're all the overflow of maturity. And I'm poking fun at it, but I appreciate and value all of these things. They are the overflow of maturity, but they are not the cause of maturity. They are not the source of maturity. And the reason why sometimes these images can give us a skewed picture is because all these things I listed, there's many of us that we hear those and we feel intimidated and sit there and go, I'm not going to be like that person. There's many of us that the way we picture spiritual maturity is this upper echelon or this VIP tier of Christianity. And we go, well, that's only for the best of the best of the best. And I feel like I'm only okay, so I could never be a spiritually mature Christian. And the truth that Paul prays over us is the complete opposites. Maturity is for all believers. All of you have been wired for maturity. And the reason that is true is because the source of maturity is the love of Jesus, which is a love he does not hold back from anyone. Therefore, if we all have access to the love of Jesus, which we do, then we all have access to, be, to the ability to become spiritually mature Christians. Why is it the love of Jesus that grows us and matures us? because the love of Jesus creates movement. 
The love of Jesus in our life propels us forward. The love of Jesus is what does not allow us to be lukewarm or stagnant. But when we experience it, our forward movement is we're excited to become more like him. The love of Jesus creates maturity because it produces fruit in our lives. Whatever that fruit may be, it produces fruit in maturity. See, Paul's prayer is similar to the first one where he's saying, don't get complacent, but experience more of God's love. Experience more of what he's got out there. Paul's prayer is also reminding us that spiritual maturity is not this final destination. We don't get a diploma, arrive and go, I'm done, I'm mature. But spiritual maturity is a lifelong God-led process. Pray to the Spirit that he would give you more. Now, Let's break this down a little further. If the source of God's love is how we become spiritually mature, then how do we engage and experience it in a way that will grow our maturity? And there's many ways to do this, but based on Paul's prayer, I want to focus in on two. So there in your note sheet, there's a section titled Growing in Maturity, Two Steps. First fill-in is this. To grow in our spiritual maturity, we need to seek a deeper understanding of God's love. We need to seek a deeper understanding of God's love. Here's why this is key. Our spiritual life with Jesus is built on his love. But the reality is there's many Christ followers that don't have a good understanding of what it means that Jesus loves you. We know the trivia fact We know that Jesus loves us because it's what we've been taught. We know that Jesus is love, again, because we've heard that phrase. But many times we don't have a good understanding of what that means in our life because we've lacked regular personal experience of what that means. I like how Francis Chan puts it. There on your note sheet, I like his quote. If you spend any time in church, you've heard expressed in some form or another the idea that God loves us. The only problem is that it was a concept I was taught, not something I implicitly knew to be true. For years, I got God's love in my head, checked the right answers on that what God is like test, but didn't fully understand it with my heart. I think that quote captures a lot of our experiences, doesn't it? I think many of us, here's why, because when we read in Paul's prayer that the source of our maturity is Christ's love, I think the honest truth, and this has been a struggle in my life as well, is that there's a lot of us that wouldn't associate God's love with, being the re- with what grows us, what makes us mature. And often the reason why is twofold. The first one is because we look at this truth where there's this temptation to minimize it and look at the truth that Jesus loves us as a truth that's good for kids. We tell our kids Jesus loves them and they make the little crafts and they come and we put it on the refrigerator. Or we come to Christ because of that truth that Jesus loves me and we sit there and go, man, that's amazing. And then we want to grow and we sit there and go, okay, Jesus loves me, great. Now I'm ready for the meat. Now I'm ready for the real theology, for the stuff we get to argue about. That's one reason why we often don't see his love as as the source of our maturity. Another reason, and this is the one I'm going to camp on for a little bit, often we don't see Jesus' love as the source of our maturity because we make the assumption that the way Jesus loves us is the way we love other people. 
And the truth of Scripture is that the way God loves us is radically different than the way we love. See, in our most honest moments, if we think about the way we love people, whatever type of people that may be, whatever type of relationship, the way we love organizations, the way we even love our interests and hobbies, do we not notice that when we love whatever that may be, we find that our love has stipulations or limits? And it's not something we intend. It's not something we might even verbalize. But there's a lot of evidence in all of our lives, myself included, that that's true. Sometimes the stipulation is, I'm going to love when it's easy. I'm going to love when it's reciprocated. But beyond that, that's not what you're getting out of me. And that shines a light into our limitations. And this can happen in a variety of circumstances. Sometimes the limits to our love are because feelings have changed, because other feelings have replaced them, like anger or bitterness. Sometimes our love changes just because tastes have changed. Sometimes it's because of hurt. Sometimes it's because of time. There's a multitude of reasons why. But if you take a good, honest look at our love, we often find that there's going to be a point for many of us in certain relationships where our love hits a wall and it has a limit. There's many of us in this room that we are carrying around deep, significant hurt because somebody's love for us had a limit and they stopped loving us or they walked out on us. There's many of us that the way we look at love is amazingly schizophrenic because we use that word in a variety of different ways and it's lost all meaning. And then we come into a church and we hear the phrase, Jesus loves you. And we sit there and go, so what's the big deal? And that's what Paul is pointing us back to. It's a big deal because it's not like anything you've experienced. Because our love has limits. And to give a further illustration of our limitations, I want you to take a mental journey with me. I want you to go back to your middle school years. That's got awkward for some of you, didn't it? I want you to go back to your middle school years. So... I'm, I'm leading this journey. I'll take you back to mine. I'm 32 years old, so let's go to 1994. Now, I've said that in all the services, and there's been two reactions to that. There's some people that are like, oh, you're so young. There's some people that are like, that's old, mm. you know, as we. <laughs> but here's what I want to ask you. When you were 12, 13 years old, what were you the apologist for? What did you love like no other. What did you wave the banner for? And what did you commit your undying love for and told everybody, I will never stop loving this? And how much of that do you still love? Now, there are things in our middle school years that we fall in love with that we do genuinely still love. In my life, I fell in love with the band Queen in middle school, and I still love them because they're amazing. In my life, oddly enough, I fell in love with musicals in middle school, and that's odd because I can't sing to save my life, but I still love them. But then there are the other areas that I remember telling family, friends, I will love this till the day I die. And our, don't we all have those things that we proclaimed our love for, but now would be ashamed if people knew about? <laughs> if I was the man I promised I was going to be when I was 12, the only show I would still be watching would be Full House. <laughs> the only clothes I would wear would be clothes with the Looney Tunes characters on them. And I would still believe that the greatest musical collaboration of all time was Paula Abdul dancing with that cat. <laughs> and it's a really silly way of looking at it, 
But we all have examples of silly, goofy, mundane, heartbreaking, and serious ways where we've seen a limitation with human love. And so the reason why this is the source of our maturity is because God's, God's love has no such limits. And I want to show you a verse that I think encapsulates this so beautifully, but also a verse that I think many of us have become numb to over the years. So there in your note sheet, if you'd read along with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now this is arguably the most well-known verse in the world. Its reference is even on the bottom of in and out cups. It's everywhere. But it's interesting because what I see in people that have been walking with Jesus and myself included is sometimes whether we realize it or not, we try to put a distance between this verse and ourselves. And it could be because we view it as a kid's verse. This is what we teach kids, but I want to get to the meat. Or maybe we've heard it so many times that it loses its impact and we start, start looking at it blindly rather than seeing that that verse contains the gospel. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to break this down briefly with what we've learned in Ephesians to show how this verse shows us these depths of how much God loves us. In fact, it shows us three key things. So let's look, look at that verse again. The first part, for God so loved the world. What state was the world in before Jesus? Like I've mentioned before, the world was filled with a rebel race that had committed treason. The world was filled with a humanity that had for the most part said, I do not want you in my life. I want nothing to do with you, so just leave. That was the state of the world, and yet the beginning of that verse tells me that God loved the world anyways. The first thing I learned from this verse is the depth of God's love, that he loved us even though we had committed treason against him. Why? Why would he love us even though we had rebelled? In the New Testament, the word most often, the Greek word most often translated to love, the Greek word most often used when we, they talk about God's love for his people is the word agape. And some of you have heard that word before. In this verse, it's its verb form, agapao. And when you look at the Greek word, when you look at the New Testament for a definition of this agape love, here's what you see. You see that this love is undeserved. You see that it's regardless of the circumstances. And you see that the recipients of this agape love are God's beloved. Even though we had burned every bridge we possibly could, he loved us anyway. And that leads to the second part of the verse. He gave his one and only son. His love is limitless. Because the only way to free us was to provide a sacrifice. And God held nothing back from his people in which he sacrificed his very own son. I'm a parent. Parents, you can relate. I can't even ma imagine that. I can't fathom that sacrifice. And yet God's love knows no limits. And what does this love finally do? So that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. We see in this verse the depth of God's love, or rather a taste of the depths. 
We see in this verse a taste of the limitless nature of his love. And finally, we see a taste that his love and only his love transforms us because only his love gives us life. It transformed us from dead to life. It transformed us and we are still living because of it. Paul's prayer is that your maturity is found in the love of Jesus. But the reality is not just your maturity, your value, your worth, your identity, and your very eternity is found in the love of Jesus. When I was talking about this message with my friend Waz, he's our college director, and I've referred to Waz a couple of times up here. Waz pointed me to a German theologian named Karl Barth. Now, this theologian, is, uh, this theologian was known for a work that he did called Church Dogmatics, which is a 13-volume work that took him 30 years to complete, and it contains over 6 million words. We can agree this guy's pretty smart, right? In fact, many PhD students to this day, they do their dissertations on his work. And what was his work? His work was the pursuit of maturity. That's what he devoted his life to, was to help the church achieve spiritual maturity. So back in 1962, he's on a lecture tour. He's on a stop in the University of Chicago. And one student during a Q&A asks him a question, can you sum up your life's work? Can you sum up your life's pursuit of maturity in one sentence? He thought about it and in complete seriousness, this was his answer. And I quote, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Amazing that one of the most brilliant scholars we've ever had, probably one of those pictures of spiritual maturity in many of our heads, defined maturity as Jesus loves me. So we grow as we seek a deeper understanding of what it means that you are loved by Jesus. Now the second step is that we grow in our maturity through experiencing Christ's love together in community. Now, we've talked a lot about community in this series, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I wanted to highlight it because, again, three times Paul referenced it. He referenced this, he referenced this truth that community does need to be our priority because we are wired to experience life together. But have you noticed that we are wired to find more enjoyment in all things when we do it together? And I understand, I'm a heavy introvert. There are times you need to recharge, but the love of Christ while we experience it individually was never meant to be, to be what isolates us. We were meant to experience it in community because it makes it richer and deeper. Just to illustrate this point, it makes me think of a concert. I love music, and one of my favorite experiences in life is going to a live concert, seeing a live music show. And I was thinking about it. If one of my favorite bands or artists, if they were to do a private show for me, that would be really, really cool. But you know what? I wouldn't take that over being in a stadium with thousands of people because there's an experience you can only get when there's a multitude of people that you don't know with different stories in different backgrounds, but you're all there because you think the same thing is awesome. Look around this room. 
You know some of these people. You don't know some of these people. But there are hundreds of people here with unique stories, unique backgrounds, unique strengths, unique struggles, but they're all here because they are loved by Jesus just as you are, and we are on the same mission. We experience more of his love when we do it in community. And that's our letter. Excuse me, and that's the first half of the letter, and that's Paul's prayer for us. And so we are going to celebrate how loved we are by Jesus in a couple of ways as we conclude our service. One, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out, and we're going to celebrate this by singing of how loved we are. And secondly, we're going to celebrate God's love for us by celebrating baptisms as a family with one another. So I'm going to pray for us. If you're one of our baptism candidates here, as I pray, you're welcome to go ahead and line up along the wall to my right. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Father, thank you that we can't possibly hope to fully wrap our minds around how loved we are. Thank you that your love is new every day. Thank you that there is always more to experience when it comes to your love. Thank you that we're never going to reach a limit when it comes to how much you love us. Thank you that it's your love that grows us, matures us, stays with us, guides us. Thank you that your love is your very presence because you are love. So when we experience your love, we're experiencing the presence of Jesus. I pray that we be a people that are just swimming every day in that love, that we be a people that are seeking it individually, that we be a people that are seeking it in community, that we be a people that are allowing it to change us from the inside out because therefore that will change the world around us. Father, as we sing these songs, let it be a prayer from us to you, just celebrating how loved we are. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand and worship together.